Well, every Sunday night in Chicago recently has been a holiday. Everybody turns everything else off and watches The Last Dance over on ESPN. Well, today we are bringing you inside the dance to get you ready for the finale of The Last Dance. We have so many conversations to tell you about what you didn't hear in the documentary. More stories, more fun, more laughs with former Chicago Bulls, current Chicago Bulls, special guests, media members, folks who knew the Jordan era like nobody else. Jason Benetti here, I will be your guide through all of these conversations. We have so much fun to get to, so let's get rolling. JB, what's up, man? Hey, how you doing? What's up with that hat? What are you doing hey, to me right now? Listen, man. Stacy. Uh, let it go. Let it hey. go. Hey. That's why I got a hat on. I was looking like Bill Russell. I was <laughs> like, oh, baby. Not all of us have John Paxson here now. Oh, that's uh, right. I know. Look at him. Just smooth, smooth, bald head. <laughs> goatees tight. Look at him. <laughs> I did shave today. I was I was looking pretty grubby, so I did shave. I'm looking today. pretty scrubby right now too. I gotta say, I have no idea where this is gonna go because we got three personalities here to talk about the first three Pete. Stacy King, Horace Grant, John Paxson. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. All right, Pax, I wanna start with you. Your overall thoughts on this here documentary we've been watching. Um, it, it's been interesting for me just to see the footage, the old footage, you know, like I look back and I see Horace and, and Stacy with some, some of the practice footage, you know, with, uh, how we all looked. It's, it's kind of nice to relive some of the, some of the times we had together because we're all getting a little bit older now. What, uh, what memories has it stirred up for you, Stacy? Um, just the good times. I mean, I always considered we were the first dance, not the last dance. Those first three were were special to each and every one of us because it was the first time we all experienced winning an NBA championship. So uh, when people ask me what I think about the last dance, I always say it's great. It's great to look back. It's great for the Chicago Bulls fans to reminisce a little bit. Horace, what do you think of how Horace Grant looked back in the day? What a handsome dance. What a <laughs> handsome. <laughs> handsome, handsome, handsome. <laughs> what was great from our end was we, and they showed it in this, we went through the struggles to get where we were. And we, we really, you know, on those teams, we built what the, the championships that we became. And that, that's what I take great pride in. I mean, it, we, we, we hung together and the organization stayed with all of us to, to get to that point. And mm -hmm. I, I think we get a little bit overshadowed just because Dennis was such a personality, you know, when he got with the <laughs> last three teams, they, they, they were already, you know, Michael and Scotty were already rock stars, but Dennis added that element. We, we didn't really have that. We were more the grinders that, that paved the way. Stacey, I was wondering, as just watching that, you guys lose to the Pistons in 1990. What, what was it like in the locker room after that? Where were you mentally? Well, you know, coming from Oklahoma, you know, I, I never really knew how bitter the rivalry was. And, you know, I'd heard about it, but until you actually get into the front line and get into the fire, you really don't anticipate that it's as bad as everybody says. And I remember getting into a fight with Scott Hastings, like the first time we played the Pistons and getting ejected. Um, so that right there told me how serious it was. There was no love between the two teams. I mean, it was bitter rivalries. And <clears throat> I tell people all the time, there's no rivalries like we see now in today's game. Everybody's friends. Everybody's riding banana boats. Everybody wants to hang out. If I saw a Detroit Piston in the summer on vacation in the Bahamas in the lobby, you know, it'd be a Mexican standoff. I mean, literally, I would, I would, it would be, it would be who would blink first. But when we, when we, when we uh, lost in um, 89 and 90, you know, I think for each man, everybody looked at each other and said, hey, no, we got to do, do something better. And, and I will, I'll give, I'll give Michael a little credit when it comes to, you know, something he said to us, uh, you know, basically went down per man and said, hey, you know, this is what we have to do to beat this team. Our veteran players on that team also chimed in, uh, Paxson, Cartwright, you know, Horst, you know, Scotty. To each man, I think we all took it personally. We all committed that summer. We worked out. We ran in the forest together, tempos in the hot, you know, Illinois sun, uh, yeah. <laughs> played pickup games together. I think after that loss, we bonded even closer than what we were, and we became one. And that was a cool experience to be part of. 
I want to move past the the Pistons thing and go to the the Los Angeles series. The the next year that huddle people talk about about who's open and getting packs the ball. What was what was that huddle like? Uh, was, it, I thought it was a little bit more spirited. Like I remember, you know, Phil was. <laughs> I thought Phil was a little bit more rated R uh, yeah. when he said. Get packs in the ball. <laughs> it's like, I mean, that's what I remember. Uh, it was more on the on the last dance. It was more, hey, John's open. Get him the ball. But I remember different things. So maybe yeah. I'm wrong. Maybe I was caught up in the moment. But I remember more of an hey. R-rated version. Hey, and I think Pac said, "You damn right, I'm open. <laughs> you damn, I've been open the whole game." Pax, <laughs> is that right? What you got on that? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm pushing 60. My memory's going, but um, <laughs> hey, look, Phil, Phil didn't—he never minced words. And if guys were were open, he'd tell you. So, uh, um, but you know, I mean, Magic was leaving me that whole series. So I, I had some opportunities to get some looks. <laughs> that that whole series was fun because it was the first time. Like Stacy mentioned earlier, that 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 was what was great. It was our first opportunity, and the city had never been through it. Organization never been through it. Um, and, and, and you're playing magic. So, um, and now, you know, you lose the first game at home, but but we had great confidence in ourselves. And then we went out and rolled them out there in LA. So to me, I, I don't know how you guys feel. To me, that's always been the best one. When yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree I, I, totally. Not not knowing uh, what to expect being our first time in the finals, going up a, uh, <clears> against <throat> a great organization, a great team like the, like the Lakers and all of their histories and their the history in there the players. So, man, the unknown, but being out there was one of the most exciting times of my entire life. Let's let's go to 93, because there are these big moments in the Phoenix series. And, and Pax, I would start with you, but that's where everybody starts. So, I, we don't talk about Pax's shot unless you get a stop, right, Horace, on the last play there? I remember big uh, Oliver Miller um, said a pick on MJ. MJ went down. It was an illegal pick. It was an illegal pick. No, it was an illegal pick. You watch it. It was illegal. Yeah, it was an illegal pick for sure. And um, Kevin Johnson was coming off, and I was kind of like back and back. And I remember him going up right at the free throw line. I'm like, oh, my goodness. I just happened to keep my balance a little bit and uh, fortunately came up with that 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 uh that block packs when you when you watch that shot back where where does your mind go like what do you think about as you're watching it because you've seen it a million times i'm sure yeah well i mean the first thing that i've always thought of all five guys on the floor touched the ball on that possession which kind of uh speaks to everything we we tried to be as a team is you know even with the greatness of michael jordan his ability to score in those three championships we went eight and one on the road um, you know, we swept LA, we were two and one against Portland and we won the three games out in Phoenix. Some reason our, that group had a resilience and resolve on the road and we wouldn't have won those championships if we weren't a, an unbelievable road team. I want to know from all three of you, and I'll start with Stacy, but I want to know from all three of you, when the moment was that you knew it was going to be a special group? I, I thought, honestly, and, and I said this to a lot of people, you know, in that 89-90 season in Detroit's second championship, um, we had a lot of adversity going into game seven. And people never talk about this. You know, everybody knows about the migraine headache that Scotty had, and that was huge for us. But we were without John Paxson, too. John Paxson hurt his knee in game six. So we go into that game shorthanded with two starters missing. And to be able to, to get to where we were without having two main guys, um, I think had we had both of those guys, I think we win that series, a game seven in Detroit, and we're looking at a four, a four run there. But when you're around these guys and you see the mentality, we had a great coach, we had a great coaching staff. I, I knew from when I got drafted here that this team was, was a championship team. It, it was just when it was gonna happen. We knew what we had to do as a unit, as a team, to get over that hump, the bonding, um, the trusting of each other, and the next year uh, we showed it. To me, the turning point was when the trade was made for Bill Cartwright. Bill gave us a leadership and a maturity that we hadn't had. His presence as a professional was so important to us. It's probably not 
ever discussed enough. And you guys brought it up, and I we'd be remiss to, to not mention this, you know, as great as Phil was. But Johnny Bach, he was a great man, but a great motivator. He was tough. Um, his presence for us was important, as was Tex Winters. Tex's teaching ability is, to me, is one of the, the lost arts in our game. And again, it evolved over a lot of years, which I take great pride in. We took our lumps. We didn't just kind of walk into something. We earned everything we had. And uh, I, I'm, I'm most proud of that. If I had to go in a dark alley, Bill Cartwright, Horace Grant, Paxson, I'd have them with me. <laughs> and Scotty, I throw Scotty, everybody on that team, you know, we, we were tough-minded, uh, tough individuals. And, you know, the one thing we talked about the last dance earlier, the, the one thing that I really – that I was really sad about is uh, Jerry Krause's betrayal in the last dance. I don't think he gets enough credit. The only player that's consonant that he didn't draft was Michael Jordan. But if you look at every player on that roster since, he either drafted – or signed as a free agent and brought him in on that team. And I don't think he gets enough credit. If his name was Jerry West, he'd be considered the greatest general manager of all time because of the way he looked or his, his, his uh, you know, standoff attitude towards the media or whatever. Um, I think that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, but I think he deserves a lot of credit and he's not getting it. And his portrayal in the, in the last dance, honestly, as a former player, uh, it really bothered me. I want to know from all three of you, and I'm going to ask the other group this too. Uh, first of all, who was the better three-peat? And then second of all, what, what was the difference between the two groups? Like, I know you were in yours and you weren't in the other one, but what do you see as the difference between the two groups and, and who was the better three-peat, even if you're just joking? The first three-peat, not being biased, which I am. <laughs> you have to be. You played in it. <laughs> but... <laughs> But I, I think the thing was that the first three peak paved the way, the way for the the second three peak. Pax. Um, well, I, I would hope that the, who are the three you're going to speak to from the the next group? Uh, <laughs> it's Tony Kukoc, Bill Wennington, and Randy Brown. Okay, I would I would hope that they would say that they they feel theirs was you know? right. I feel ours were just because. I participated in it, and we did, and we know how special that was. So um, I, I've never gotten into comparing teams. You have your own unique experience. So um, all I know is that, as we said before, we, we, we really went through a unique experience. We were allowed to stay together for a long time to build what, what became the foundation of the Bulls' success. That, that's the most special thing to me. Stacy, any final thoughts on that? Well, of course, I'm going to say me uh, and our team. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I had no idea what you were going to say. <laughs> yeah, I, of course, of course no I'm going to say that. JB, who wouldn't say that, okay? But what I'm going to say is it's a win-win for the whole organization. It's a win-win for the city of Chicago that they were able to experience magical time between two different sets of three-peats. And I think that's, that's all that matters is that, hey, we represented Chicago to the fullest. Uh, we represented the organization to the fullest. And, and maybe we can get it going here in Chicago again because I would love to be a fan on the outside looking in, like all the great players, you know, artists Gilmore, Chet Walker, you know, Bob Love, all those guys who paved the way for all of us to come on and play in this franchise and to carry what they started, uh, you know, to be able to do that with the, this younger group of kids coming in here that are playing for the Bulls right now that we could, you know, be part of that as as old Bulls spectators. That would be so cool to be part of that. So hopefully it will be in the near future uh, before I get to be like 90 years old and I can't celebrate. <laughs> hey, look, I don't – this has been it's been awesome to chat with you guys. I do have to say, Stacy, we got to get you a new hat collection. Hey, listen, you know what? Maybe maybe, maybe if, the, if, if Jerry would send me some White Sox gear – <laughs> look, I'm, re I'm repping my bulls, though. Look, look, I'm repping bulls. But, look, you know, you know dude, my wife, my look, wife. This is yours. Hat. I'm going to send this to listen, you. Listen, see, I've been working with you now for two years, JB, and you like to start trouble, okay? First of all, <laughs> I like to start hair, trouble. You showed up with a cub hat on. First of all, I'm looking like a guy that played in the 1970s. I have an afro underneath this hat. <laughs> I'm not willing, with under the quarantine situation, I have not been able to get to my barber. 
So therefore, my wife has cut my hair, and maybe I don't want the public to see it, JB. But it's not about the hat; it's about the man under the hat. Okay. This is enough of this. This yeah, is I think it's time to wrap it up, Jason. I think yeah, you're, uh, you're right, Pax, John Pax, and Stacy King, Horace Grant. This has been awesome, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks, JB. Alrighty. All right, boys. I'll see you. Coming up next, the writer who put all of it out there. The Hall of Famer, Sam Smith, he wrote Jordan Rules. He's got story upon story about the era, and he joins us after this. Well, I am so pleased to be joined by the Hall of Fame scribe, the, the man who graced everyone at Pace University with his presence, the Fort Wayne News Sentinel. So many places across the country know his name, Sam Smith. Thank you so much for joining us, you Hall of Famer, you. So you've been in this documentary quite a bit. You've been watching it, I'm sure. What, what do you think so far? I think the parts about me have saved it, basically. This thing is going down the drain if I'm not involved in it. I think that's pretty clear. Right? <laughs> I absolutely. That's my takeaway. Yeah. Uh, well, other than us, other than our view of it, uh, the Mike, yeah, actually, what it is is the Michael Jordan story. First of all, it's terrific. It's great for his legacy. It's great for Chicago. I think it's great for the Bulls, too, because I, I think it's showing not only a great era, but what a great era means if you have it in Chicago. You know, in a one, in a one sort of team, NBA, you know, Chicago. This is the kind of thing that can happen. Obviously, you know, you can't get Michael Jordan all the time. But uh, it, it, it's great for the nostalgia for us. But it's also, to me, the best thing about it is to see Michael as we saw him, as we knew him in the 80s, you know, open, friendly, candid, fun, uh, harsh sometimes, but, you know, with a sort of a twinkle in his eye. So I, I, I've enjoyed that people have gotten to see Michael that so many of us knew who have who grow who grew so reclusive in recent years that people really didn't get a sense of him other than some sort of image or vision, and now there's some more humanity to him than than a lot of people have seen in in recent decades. You knew Michael very early on. What do you think young Michael would say about Michael now? I'll really kick his ass. <laughs> it, it, you know, I, I think he, he's grown up to be the kind, the, other than fabulously wealthy, that you never imagined. You know, he was a great businessman. He understood the marketing. He played along with it. But he was really about, and what he said rings true all the way through it. He went into it. He was always just about the game. And so that, to me, is carried through. And that's where you saw the delight in his eyes about the basketball stuff. Because with all the other stuff... Because a lot of people have said, you know, why is he doing this? He, he's, a, he's a billionaire, probably working on a second billion, owns a basketball team, Charlotte, uh, just built a golf course in, in Naples, uh, uh, Jupiter, where he lives, uh, $200,000 entry fees. You know, what does he need this for? And because I think it brings him back to the game and, then, you know, that first love of it. And, that, and, and I, think, I think, you know, the young Michael would see this in Michael today. Why so competitive? You know, his father said the interesting thing, you know, when they said about the gambling thing came up, he said, you know, Michael doesn't have a gambling problem. He has a competitiveness problem. And so Michael you know, probably from a young age was trying to prove himself to his dad all the time. When he first came in as a freshman at North Carolina, and, he's pre and, and, you know, this is a dynasty of basketball for many years, and it was at the time. And so he's in practice, he's dunking on guys and then coming back into the locker room and writing down on the board how many times he dunked on Worthy, how many times he dunked on Perkins. And, you know, these are all Americans about to be top, you know, three and four picks in the draft. And this freshman kid is coming in, challenging him right away. I'll dunk in your face. I think that's just who he was. That's just the nature of it. And that's part of the game. You know, the game is about competition. And he just always took it to this extraordinary level. What made you write the book, Sam? Um, I was thinking 30 years from now, there's going to be a documentary. And Michael is going to say, yeah. You <laughs> nailed it. You had it. Exactly. I mean, it really was an innocent sort of project in the sense that I mean, it really was me saying, 
you know, I've kind of reached my dream, you know, sort of like you, I've heard you say about wanting to broadcast your hometown team and all that sort of stuff. And at the time I, I, I met a number of writers who've written books and I thought, well, they're not a lot that they're not very smart. I can, maybe I can do that too. I'll have a book and, I, and someday I'll put it up on my shelf and, and, you know, I'll bring people around and say, you know, I wrote a book back then. And so I just started as sort of a diary, you know, diary project just to, you know, as an experience to do a book. And more than a lot of things, you know, talent is great, but timing is a lot more important. Right time, right place, right situation. <laughs> the year I happened to pick, Michael Jordan didn't break his foot in the third game like he did his second year. He ended up winning a title and beating Magic and the Lakers. So there were other events right around the time that I didn't have a lot of control of that raised Michael and uh, Michael's profile and, and the book as well. You mentioned some controversy, and, and I know people have been talking about for years and decades the Republicans buy sneakers to comment. I know you wrote a piece uh, on Bulls.com, but, but what's your take on all of that? I, I, actually, I was a little surprised because, you know, I wrote this piece for uh, uh, Bulls.com, you, you know, defending him because I kind of felt badly about what had happened. He's really been treated unfairly on this. Because just to go back a little bit, in the 80s, the NBA was in a lot of trouble. Even Bird and Magic come along, you know, this great rivalry out of college, but the league is still struggling. And if you go, if you go back, you know, wasn't Magic, wasn't Bird, Kareem, who was very, you know, politically active, uh, boycotted the 68 Olympics, sat with Ali when he was banned from boxing, never said a word about this stuff. So, you know, they were, they were kind of schooled about, look, Let's stay out of politics. Let's stay out of controversial issues until we, you know, let's get the league up on its feet. And so I'm, I'm bothering Michael about this. And, and I can tell in the back of his mind, he knows I, I got to stay away from this topic. So he comes up with the great one-liner, you know, just to get, it was actually to get rid of me, you know, Republicans, their sneakers too. So, you know, and that's what Michael did. He said, he's always had the last word, you know, the competitive nature is he's going to take the last shot. He's going to have the last word in a debate. Who was best at giving it back to Michael? Probably Horace was the one. Horace wasn't as quick verbally, but he would challenge Michael. And, and I think you've seen that come out in some of the documentary. You know, Michael's settling scores too. Michael takes names and he doesn't forget. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of like the uh, Seinfeld Festivus uh, holiday with Michael a long time. The airing of grievances? He's got grievances to air, and you're always going to hear Michael's grievances, whatever they might be. It was really amazing. And, and, and that's the great thing about, to me, about the documentary, too. Seeing so, now it's so focused on Michael, obviously, but there's so many great uh, human and biographical elements with Scotty and Phil Jackson and some of the others. And, and, and I think that's what I was trying to do in the book, too, to show the richness of a team that, yeah, Michael Jordan is a central figure. But these really all these amazing figures grouped together and, and, and what Phil Jackson has done with them. Sam Smith, thank you so much for joining us from, I can't, is that uh, Jordan Rules Mansion number three you're in right now? I can't tell. I wish I was in number two, which is in a sunny place. And we know we're not getting that till July here. Sam, thank you so much. Great insight. Fantastic. Coming up next, if you've ever debated your family, which three-peat was better? I mean, it's fun to talk about, right? We have the guys from 96 through 98. Bill Wennington, Tony Kukoc, Randy Brown. We'll ask them, which three-peat was better? You won't believe their answer. Well, you might. We'll find out inside the dance. So glad to be joined by the guys from the second three-peat. Uh, Tony Kukoc, Randy Brown, and Santa Claus are here. Great to have all of you. Bill Wennington, uh, uh, look, uh, we have so many pressing things to discuss about The Last Dance, but I want to start with the most important. Why do you have a slot machine? <laughs> because I, Vegas is too far away, so I just go downstairs and plop my quarters in and have fun. Do you use it? And where did you get it? Uh, it's considered an antique, and I do use it occasionally. I used to use it a lot more, but uh, now it's uh, more of a decoration, but it does work. Yeah, fantastic. And I'm not even going to ask about that thing behind you. So, Randy, yeah. uh, what, what's your overall opinion on the documentary so far? Um, it's bringing back a lot of memories. 
Uh, I'm watching it as a fan, <clears throat> a fan again. So it was um, it was good to see the different insights of everybody having. In the light of the pandemic going on, I think it takes a um, it puts the nation in a good space. You know, we've um, we're hurting as a nation, and to see this uh, camera crew follow the greatest team ever to play, man, it's, it, it's it's becoming it became historical, and I'm pretty sure my teammates and I didn't see this coming. So it's good to see. Bill, as you're watching this, what kind of messages are you getting from people and what's your takeaway from, from watching the whole thing? Well, the people that know me know I've kind of talked about it before and they, they talk about what a fierce competitor Michael was and, and they asked, was he really that hard on players? And yeah, he was because he wanted to win and he was pushing us. But I don't think people that don't play sports, they don't understand that that's kind of the way lo most locker rooms were, where guys yeah, were pushing. Yeah. Now, Michael took it to a different level and brought it up, but the kibitzing and the, and the pushing of each other and trying to make each other better and, and poking fun at each other was going on in every locker room I've been in, uh, going back to high school. But Michael brought it to a different level because he wanted to win, and he was making us all feel the pressure and practice so that in the games, it would be easy for us and we would be prepared to go out there. And he was also testing us to find out if we were good enough to be there. What was it like when you first met Michael? What was your first meeting like, Randy, when, when you first got to know him? What was that like? Kid growing up in Chicago, Michael was, you know, was my idol. You know, I grew up watching Michael Jordan. And when I came to the Bulls in 95, you know, that was my fifth year in the NBA and I, Right off the bat, I thought I knew a lot about the NBA, but that walking to that walking to that gym, seeing Michael, Scotty, and Dennis, and then Tony Kukoc, and Bill Winnington, it was I, I was in shock all over again. I learned I had to learn how to practice. What did you do when you wanted to get under Michael's skin? This <laughs> oh. <laughs> speak Croatian because he didn't understand it. <laughs> that was that was the only that was the only way. Well, but we, we all understood that, that he is so competitive that he's going to bring anything and everything. Um, and uh, I, I think we accepted that thing. Well, I tried not to get under his skin that often. I don't believe that for a second, but, knowing you. But, exactly. but it, was, it was easy. All you had to do was beat him at something. Now, that's hard. That's very hard to do. But fortunately for me, I'd met Michael when I was McDonald's All-American. And back in 1981, and on the bus, we were, I saw that competitive nature, and I figured it out really quick back then and how, how good he was going to be because he was, wanted to compete at pretty much everything. And after that, fortunately, St. John's played North Carolina, and we won. We only played one time. So all I had to do was bring that up and say, how many times did uh, North Carolina you <laughs> St. John's? And that's all it takes because he doesn't like to lose. That's awesome. I, 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 all of your favorite memories of the three-peat, I'm sure you have a ton of them, and we've heard so many of them. But Randy, I want to start with you. Yeah. What's a moment that you come back to that you're like, I, I cherish that about the second three-peat? My most, you know, my, my favorite teammate broke my heart. Tony Kukoc not giving me that ball during the 96 championship just really, it, it, it set me back. It set me back, you know. <laughs> and, and I, I, but TK, I really, it was I, a, it was a toss up in between you and him who was going to grab it first. It was TK and TK, and, I didn't, and I, 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 I figured Michael wanted a I ball. Know. I didn't know you wanted a ball too. I know, TK, I couldn't remember TK had happened until I saw it last night, and I'm I'm, I'm right in front of TK and TK and, and TK sees me and he sees Michael, and TK's like, you know what? I got to make a decision here. And he made the right decision. It was Father's Day. He gave it to Michael, which ended up being the right thing to do, TK. If I was smarter, I would have yeah. run the other way with the ball. Very, yes. <laughs> I would have <laughs> ran. You can't yeah. do that anymore. I had a feeling MJ wanted that ball. Yeah, I did, too. It was Father's Day. It was the right thing yeah. to do, TK. Yeah, it was a lot of things that had worked out well that day. So I remember, I remember one moment. Bill's going to know this. Um, we were watching, um, what is the name of the movie? Uh, <laughs> The whistling thing. The, the, oh, Austin Powers. Austin Powers. Austin Powers. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea how that whistle stuck in my head. To the point I really came yeah, to the yeah, okay, I remember and started whistling that thing. And after like 30 minutes of, of me like shooting the ball, whistling, not, not paying attention, like everybody's kind of looking at me, but I see 
Phil going absolutely crazy about it. <laughs> he starts screaming at me like, like are you going to stop with that? It's really annoying. And, and, and I said, okay, I'm sorry, I, I, I forgot. There's no particular game or one instance in a game that you remember, but being with the guys every day and the friendships that we had and the unity that we had and the bond that everyone created, it was really a special team that everyone got, got along well. It, you know, yeah, there was a couple little clicks, but really that whole team hung out together and did things together. And you could see that every day after practice in the training room and the trash talking and the kibitzing that was going on. It was, it was just so much fun to be part of that. When you see Dennis Rodman's face pop up, what's the first thing you think of? Anybody? Fun. Shy. Entertainer. Great teammate. You said entertainer, Randy. That's that's interesting to me. What 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 do you mean by that? He would because because Bill and TK knows Dennis. Um, when the camera's not on, you you can't get two words out of the guy. And um, he knew exactly what he was doing. He would piss somebody off, and when that camera goes off, he look at you and he pat you on the back. He start laughing because he he knew he was an entertainer. Um, a lot of people don't understand. This guy was smartest, one of the smartest guys I've ever met. Um, you know, on that basketball court, he knew everything um, there was to know about defensive strategies and all that stuff. But you know, when the lights came on, he became an entertainer. He he put on a show for his fans. Uh, all right, Bill, I, I am going to ask, what is that thing behind you? What is that? <laughs> that's my that's bad, Bill. He's my alter ego. He drinks and smokes a lot more than that's I do. Awful. So that makes you good, Bill. Yes. <laughs> Tony, are we buying this? As good as it can be. <laughs> we know better. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I do want to know, you, have, you, you all have such personalities, and the amazing thing is it all fit together. I, I want to know why Phil was so important to all of you. Phil had the way how to bring everybody in. That, that was the one thing that I loved about him, that he would take time with every individual and, and, and find a way to talk to him, to uh, uh, listen what he had to say, to, to learn about uh, the, the history, uh, the family and everything else. One through 15, um, he treated everybody the same. Um, I, I don't think Bill and TK, I don't think you guys remember, he, would, he made a statement of, you know, when you're in a rotation, there's always good moments for you but those rest of the guys were important to him. Uh, the guys that weren't in the rotation, the guys that weren't playing, uh, he made sure we stayed engaged. That, that's really it in a nutshell. And Phil was so unique and, and the best coach that I played for because of his techniques. And you have 12 egos, strong egos that were in the Americans case, the best, best players in college on their teams. And in Tony's case, one of the best, if not the best player over in Europe at the time. And he was able to keep us happy in our roles and make us understand that we were very vital and important to the team and the roles that we had needed to be done and, and just kept us on point that way. Yep. Well, guys, this has been an absolute pleasure. And as we, as we leave, you guys were the better three-peat, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No question about it. Just making, just making sure about that. And it's Bill, just, and just so you know, they saved the best for last. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly Everybody's exactly. about the numbers. So just check the numbers. Yeah. Well, this was absolutely awesome. Randy Brown, Tony Kukoc, Bill Wennington, thank you so much. And Bill, if that guy's guarding the door, don't walk through that door. I don't know what's on the other side. The other side is on the other side. Yeah, no thanks on that. Hey, B yeah. TK, yeah, what time is it? What time is it? Team time! <laughs> Coming up next, Michael Jordan from North Carolina. We go down to North Carolina to talk to two guys who know the Tar Heels very well. Kobe White, current bull, and Roy Williams, the guy who helped recruit Michael Jordan to North Carolina. They join us to talk MJ and the last dance inside the dance after this. It is a pleasure to be joined by these two gentlemen. Kobe White, former North Carolina Tar Heel, current Chicago Bull, and his coach, and the guy who helped bring in Michael Jordan to Carolina, the Hall of Famer, Roy Williams. Gentlemen, thank you so much. 
Nice to be here, Jason. Coach, I want to start with you. Uh, just watching the doc, uh, your first thoughts on everything you've seen so far. I've just been blown away and I lived much of it. You know, especially the early episodes, his time here and in the 98 uh, finals, I was at the one of the games uh, going through it with Michael and still talking to Michael today. I talked to him last week. Uh, uh, it's made me appreciate him even more, and I really love it for guys like Kobe because uh, they know that some of the things, I think I even said it on the first episode. I said, Michael Jordan's the only guy I've ever known who could turn it on and turn it off, and he never freaking turned it off. <laughs> and uh, Kobe remembers hearing that, but no, it's, uh, uh, I'm setting my schedule so I don't miss any. I just think it's been fantastic. It's Michael's really shown the personal side, uh, the emotional side as we, as we saw last night. But he was the, uh, the ultimate competitor, uh, the most focused guy I've ever been around in my life. Kobe, you didn't live any of the championships. What's it like for you watching all this? Um, it's amazing, man. It, it, it's amazing just to see that. And competitive nature and, and to see everything up close and it makes you have a better understanding of who he was and what type of guy he was and not just what you hear from other people it's been great um I never I haven't missed any second of it I learned a lot and um you know just from him and now I, I truly know why everybody wants to be like Mike so Kobe I saw you nodding when coach was talking about Michael using the phrase that he'd used before how much did you hear about Michael when, when <laughs> oh. you were playing at Carolina I heard, I heard a good amount, but that one phrase is probably the first thing that I heard, and um, it always, like, stuck with me since then. Um, so that phrase, uh, yeah, it stands out, so especially when I heard it on the documentary. Because in the previews, it's, remember in the previews, it showed Coach saying that before the documentary actually dropped. Yeah. Um, so I told my brother about how, you know, that's the first thing I heard him say uh, about Michael Jordan when I got on campus. Coach, what was young Michael like? You know, he was a young, uh, he was a kid. There's no question about that. He loved to have fun. He loved to talk. I've said this many times, the only thing Michael did better than play was talk. If he were to see me with my beard right now, there's no telling what he would be saying. But uh, he came in as a freshman at six, four and a half, very athletic, uh, uh, not really that sound fundamentally, but he had the pieces. He got better every year. I mean, as a freshman, he was six, four and a half, just about a half inch shorter than Kobe, just a little bit. <laughs> uh, he had the whole package, God had blessed him, and then what he did is he, he used it. And uh, he became the most competitive uh, guy I've ever seen in my life. And uh, uh, I challenged him at the start of his freshman year about playing hard and harder than everybody else. And he told me his freshman year, he said, you'll never see anybody play harder than me. And I remember, I could walk down to the spot beside the track behind Carmichael Auditorium and sit down in the grass within five feet of where I was sitting today, he told me that. What was it inside of him that made that happen? I, I, I watched the documentary and say, where did that all come from? I think it came from his parents. They gave him the confidence to try. And he had this inner desire that very few people have, but people do. But he did something with it. And I think that's the difference. He had this desire to be a great player. He told me he wanted to be the best player that ever played at North Carolina. And I think that uh, uh, every day in practice, he tried to show that. And he got better and better. Kobe, he didn't win his first defensive player of the game award his freshman year until the national championship game. Kobe won his first one about his seventh game. Yeah. But Kobe, when you're watching this, how much do you just want to go play basketball and beat somebody? Every athlete just wants to go outside and shoot hoops, uh, go work out any way to get better. Um, you try to motivate, you know, it's such a motivation watching that. In my profession, we aspire to be like Mike. So um, through watching that documentary, I mean, it gives me a lot of motivation to, you know, continue to keep what I'm doing and stay on the right path to get better. But, you know, during the watching it, you just want to go grab a basketball and get better and, you know, get up shots and, and run sprints and stuff. You're still a young kid to me. Don't ever leave. You're never going to change with me, big fella. But Kobe worked unbelievable hard. Kobe got better. As the season got along, he got better and better and better. And uh, uh, the Chicago fans are going to love him for a long time. And uh, I thought he did some great things this year as rookie year with the Bulls. 
I was going to ask Kobe, the first time you heard from North Carolina, what are you thinking when you hear that? Going through my head was just a blessing. Um, you know, a dream of mine is to play, you know, to start in the NBA. Not many people can say they did that, you know. So for me, when I hear, you know, from North Carolina, 6'4 guard, um, it means a lot. It meant a lot to me. And, uh, you know, at the moment, you know, I'm focused on the game, you know, lock in. I'm trying to lead my team to a win. So, but afterwards, you sit down and you realize, and, you know, that, you know, um, part of your dream has come true. Jason, let me tell you a story. Did they did they really announce you at six four from North Carolina? <laughs> yeah, they they yeah they they yeah. Jason, I tell you, we measured him. He's six four and a half, and I said I'm gonna call you six four and a half, and he kept saying, Coach, I'm six five, and I said, No, you're six four and a half. But I said, When you win the Defensive Player of the Game award, then I'll start calling you six five. So after that seventh game or something like that, I started calling him six five the rest of his time. So we got to get the announcer to call you six five. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get on that. I offered Kobe a scholarship the summer after his sophomore year. I just fell in love with the way he played. And, uh, and every time I talked to him, and particularly early on, uh, he and his dad and his mom came and played pickup with our guys. And having a conversation that night with his dad is one of the best I've ever had with anybody. What was young Kobe like as you were recruiting him? He had a, a, a viciousness about him of attacking the basket that I loved. And he could shoot the ball as well, but at six five, uh, he, could, he could handle the ball. But he, I loved his his uh, determination to attack the basket to make plays. Saw him in one high school game have five three pointers and five dunks in the same game, and that's a pretty great variety for a point guard. And he made passes instinctively, and he enjoyed winning. He was the leading scorer in North Carolina basketball history, and uh, just. And I'm not trying to suck up to him right now, but one of the nicest young men I've ever known in my life. And his mom and dad are just off the charts. And, and I loved his dad. His dad uh, called me one night. I'd call him periodically, but he called me one night and told me he wanted, he was so glad that uh, Kobe was going to play for me. And I told him at that time he had already gotten sick and we knew he was sick. And uh, I said, he's going to be an NBA player. And he said, I want you to tell him when he's ready. Uh, but his dad was his dad was a good player. Told great stories, didn't he, Kobe? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, but no, just great, great people. But Kobe's going to be an NBA uh, player for a long time, get better every year. And I think Kobe White's eventually going to be an NBA All-Star. Kobe, when did Coach tell you you were ready? He didn't tell me was re I was ready until um, after the season. We had a good, a good meeting, and I basically you know, told me that he felt like I was ready to make the transition to the NBA. When I got that blessing, I knew that, um, you know, it was time for me to, to, to go. I'm, I won't make a decision until I, I talk to Coach Williams. Obviously, everybody knows he has a big influence on my life. My last question, Coach, is uh, surrounding George Carl. If you were at a dinner and you were playing against Michael in the finals and you saw him across the restaurant, how would you have handled that? Because Michael took a lot of motivation from George not mentioning anything to him and just walking out. Mm -hmm. How would you have dealt with that if you were playing against Michael in the finals as the coach? Well, I never coached in the NBA against Michael and, and uh, Michael had so many ways of trying to become motivated, but there's no doubt in my mind, I would go over to Michael Jordan and not in today's times because of the coronavirus, but there's no doubt in my mind that I would have gone over to Michael and hugged him and, uh, said, I hope you play great tomorrow night, but I hope we win. And oh, by the way, I told the waiter that you would pick up my tab and then I would run out as fast as I could. <laughs> Outstanding. And Kobe, before we let you go, what are you up to right now? Bulls fans want to know uh, how you how you spending your time and what are you doing? Uh, right now, I'm just uh, working out when I can, being with my family, being my mom, being my sister and, and her uh, son and daughter, my niece and nephew. So, um, just doing what everybody else is doing, trying to stay safe and um, trying to stay sane during this time. It's starting to change a little bit. Hopefully, continue to change and get better. What we understand uh, two games in a row coming off the bench, getting 30, and two games in a row as a rookie in Chicago Bulls history. The last guy to do that was Michael Jordan. And I'm not trying to say that that's who you are, but guys, let's understand Kobe White's going to be sensational in Chicago for a long time.
awesome coach. Uh, thank you very much, Kobe White, Roy Williams. It's so good to see you together again, even if we can't be in the same place. Thank you for spending the time. No problem. Thank you, you very much. Good to see you, big fella. Yes, sir. You too, coach. Coming up next, I know you're wondering, what's after this for the Chicago Bulls? What does the next generation of Bulls look like? We're going to find out. Arturis Karnaschovas, Mark Eversley, the Brain Trust, the new guys to guide the Bulls into the next generation and the next era. They will join us when we come back inside the dance. All right, we've talked a lot of Bulls history, and now we are here to talk about the next phase of the Bulls. I am joined by Arturis Karnaschovas, the Executive Vice President for Basketball Operations, and Mark Eversley, the new General Manager of the Bulls. Guys, thank you so much for stopping by. How you doing? Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, I'm fantastic. We've talked so much Last Dance, and I know there's a little bit of the Last Dance, Arturis, that inspired you in terms of bringing Mark on. How did that happen? Well, the short version of it is when we settle on Mark, uh, I was going to call him on Monday morning. But while watching the documentary, it kind of got emotional and said, why, why should I wait? And I uh, texted him to make sure that he's still awake because he's on the East Coast time. So he responded, yes, because he's uh, re-watching it now on his couch. Um, so I called him up and offered him a job. So. Mark, what are you thinking when you get that text? So it's funny because I was talking to um, Michael Reinsdorf and he had called me at about 8.15 and I thought, you know what? It's going to take about 30 minutes, 45 minutes, you know, we'll have a nice chat and then I can sit down and watch The Last Dance. We ended up speaking for about an hour and a half, so I had to tape The Last Dance. Um, so I got off the phone with Michael, like, you know, queue up ESPN and put on the DVR and, you know, I'm watching The Last Dance and you know, I watched the first episode, you know, take a little break and uh, put on the second episode and I get this text from Arturis and he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm watching The Last Dance, you know. He says, you want to talk in the morning or do you want to talk now? And I said, Arturis, I haven't slept in 10 days, man. You might as well just call me right now. So <laughs> he called me right away and, you know, offered me the job and, you know, here we are today. So obviously very thrilled and you know, it's a terrific opportunity. I'm really pleased. The uh, the 90s Bulls keep inspiring. I want I want to, before we move on to the next generation of the Bulls, I want to ask both of you, Arturis first, you were playing during the time of all this and the 90s Bulls. What did they mean to you back then? And what's it like watching it now? You know, my passion was born, obviously, in the 80s when I was in Stone Lithuania as a teenager, uh, when Michael was uh, drafted by Chicago Bulls. So, you know, in the early 90s, when I was in college, that was an opportunity to watch more Bulls basketball, and obviously they were dominating. And then I got an opportunity actually to catch the last championship team uh, when I was playing for Olympiacos. You know, in that first episode that starts with Paris, you know, I was actually playing in that game. So that was, you know, special and you know, by watching uh, this documentary is just uh, great memories. Mark, I know you have a playing background, but you also were in the the Nike game and you were you were dealing with branding and marketing and things like that. What lens do you watch this through? So obviously, you know, working with Nike back in the day, um, you know, Michael was, he was the brand at the time. And, you know, for me, watching Michael grow into the player that he became was special. Fast forward to today and, you know, now I'm working for, you know, this iconic franchise that he, you know, he helped build uh, is is really neat for me. So it's uh, it's special. Uh, to that point, Mark, when you step back and you say, I'm the general manager of the Chicago Bulls, what, what do you think? <laughs> you sound like one of my friends. <laughs> um, it's, it's obviously incredibly special. This is a iconic franchise. It's an iconic city. It's an unbelievable sports city. And to be named general manager is just a dream come true. Um, you know, I'm very fortunate to be where I am today. And, you know, I'm thankful to the organization for, you know, giving me an opportunity to, to help lead this, you know, franchise back to uh, where the fans, you know, want it to be. And that's, you know, competing for championships and playing meaningful games in spring. 
Arturis, what's the first step in getting there? What Mark's talking about? What's, what's the first step? What will we see in the near term? Well, for us, it's obviously to get to Chicago, uh, to get <laughs> on the ground, to, to put our boots on the ground, to come to a practice facility, meet the staff, keep evaluating uh, you know, every department that is uh, right now in the organization and see what we have, um, meet the current staff, meet the coaching staff, uh, you know, spend time with players, uh, the draft, uh, free agency, you know, keep upgrading the team, keep adding talent. Mark, what kind of people do you like to have around you? Um, you know, I love people who are passionate about what they do. I love being around people with high character. Um, you know, I love people who are committed to, you know, chasing a dream. The one thing that stuck out for me in, in the last dance is just Michael Jordan's just competitive nature. Um, you know, I think if we can surround ourselves with people like that, who share that passion, who share that commitment, who share that drive, I think we'll be in really, really good shape. The sky's the limit for this franchise. How do you evaluate walking into a new franchise? You have no real blueprint for all this. What are you using to lean on as you start to move the bulls forward? With Mark now, we've running uh, scouting Zoom meetings, you know, with with our scouting staff and basketball operations. Then we get on a call with coaches. Um, you know, we're discussing what's been done in the past, what we can do better. This situation is kind of getting us closer because we're probably even talking more to each other. Uh, and I'm talking about not only with Bulls organization, I'm talking about, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on a bunch of Zoom calls with uh, other teams and other executives. And it's, we're kind of united in this uh, situation to, uh, to try to find solutions and, you know, looking for answers. Mark, what are those scouting calls like? What can you do on Zoom as you, as you go through this? Um, it's a great opportunity to get with your staff and talk about players. Um, you know, you can talk about the draft. Um, you know, we've been able to get on the phone with prospects and, you know, interview them, get to know them a little bit better. Obviously, you'd love to be in person with them in the same room and, you know, look at things like body language, look at, you know, those types of things. But it's a great opportunity for us to sit with our staff and talk about players, you know, strengths, weaknesses, uh, things they need to uh, work on. Um, and again, anytime you can have an interaction with a player, whether it's in person or over a Zoom phone call, you know, it's a touch point to where you can evaluate the prospect and see if you can envision them being a part of your organization moving forward. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you, and I cannot wait to see this next generation of the Bulls. And I'm excited for you all because you've been you've had all this time now to like jump out and go do it. And I can tell that you really are, are looking forward to it. So thank you so much for the time. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that'll do it for Inside the Dance. And what a fun romp through the 90s and through that era of the Bulls with so many special guests and so many wonderful stories. We hope you had some laughs as well along the way. But we thank you for joining us and to everybody from Bulls TV for putting it together. And by the way, I cannot wait to see what happens next for the Chicago Bulls. It is a proud, wonderful, historic franchise that we're seeing every Sunday night as The Last Dance closes. And it's thrilling to see the next generation of the Bulls starting to come to life. So we look forward to that. We thank you for joining us. For everybody at Bulls TV, I'm Jason Benetti. Enjoy the finale of The Last Dance.